Well, I shared earlier about Jenna Bird going to be with the Lord this week, and, and she had a faith in Christ, and she had heard the message of the cross, and to her, it, it wasn't foolish. To her, it was everything. And for her family, as they walk through these trials this week, um, their hope is in Christ and the cross that he suffered and died on for them, and they cling to that. And that's what gives them hope and how believers can walk through such trials. And as a church, um, that's what holds us together. It is our essential beliefs, a set of core beliefs, and, and our essential mission. This doesn't mean that everyone in the church agrees on everything, right? Uh, Roger's going to get excited about English cricket matches, right? He's also going to get excited about Watford soccer. Some of you guys never even heard of Watford before, right? On the other hand, you know, like Eli over here, are you a Liverpool fan or FC Barcelona? Barcelona, of course. That's what I thought. Oh, I'm, oh you don't speak about Liverpool? Well, did Barcelona win yesterday? They played today, so we don't know yet. Well, Liverpool won yesterday. Okay, man? Okay, just, and some of you guys are like, y'all are talking about soccer? Come on, the Cowboys are about to play. What in the world? All right, just kidding. Yeah, the Rangers. Are they still playing? I'm just kidding. All right, just kidding. Just kidding. It's all right. It's all right. Okay. But we have these preferences, right? <laughs> we have different likes. I think we, we almost had a little dissension there for a second, all right? So, uh, we're not going to agree on everything, right, in life and even in church. And, and there's going to be non-essential things, even with what we talk about maybe in, in Scripture and thing. There's non-essentials, okay? Um, but there are essentials, and those essentials we, we must agree on and, and, and talk the same about and believe the same about. That is important and about the mission as well. And so today we read here as we started out of the gates last week in 1 Corinthians that Paul has received word that the church in Corinth had gotten off track. He received a letter uh, about this and that there were divisions. And what was happening is it, it became like a, a popularity contest of sorts. And so the troubles the church in Corinth experienced are really not too far removed to what happens many a times in our culture here in the West, in America, that this is not too far removed. I mean, I think about it, man. Why, why, I mean, why do people leave churches today, right? They, they leave churches over disagreements. Um, usually, you know, sometimes it's over doctrine. It's over essential beliefs, um, but many times it's not. It's over preferences, okay? It's because the, the place down the street has the next best, coolest thing, okay? Or, man, they don't like that preacher's style or that preacher's teaching. And, and so, and, and, and we've seen that through Christendom. You see that happening. And we see it in our, our culture to where uh, Christianity at times does kind of become about style, and be about a, uh, the way different people teach and, and, and the way they share, share things and the way we brand things. And 
Um, it, it becomes about that. And, and Jesus never wanted it to be about that. Paul is going to come and, and he's going to write to the church at Corinth and, and encourage them to unity about what matters, what's of most importance. And so we want to be encouraged in the same way today. And so as we begin today, uh, we're told as, as God's people in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, to be diligent, to pre- preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so we are to work hard uh, to be diligent when it comes to preserving our unity about the things that matter, that hold us together as a church, in what we believe and in our mission. John Calvin says this, that would that the union between all Christ's churches upon earth were such that the angels in heaven might join their song of praise, that the unity of the church would be so glorious that the angels, while we're singing praises together, join in with us. We must fight hard for unity. We must Believe in it and pray as Jesus did. And, and this morning, here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you four just points, high points, all right? First of all is this. What, what is Jesus' goal of Christian unity? What was Jesus' goal of Christian unity? And then we're going to hear about Paul's exhortation here, what he's going to encourage us toward and here at the church in Corinth. And then we're going to see the nature of disunity, what disunity looks like, what, what discord looks like, quarrels, division look like. And then what the nature of that unity that we're seeking after, what we desire, uh, really looks like this morning. So those four things. But the first thing I want us to see here is Jesus' goal. Jesus' goal for Christian unity, what, what it is. And we see a few places in Psalm 133, verse 1 through 3, this beautiful text. It says this, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down from the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. And so what, what does that mean? The psalmist is talking about this beautiful thing of, of unity. And really what the psalmist is doing is, you see, when he thinks about brothers, when he thinks about the fellowship of believers, the fellowship of God, he looks at it and he says, man, how precious that is. How sweet is the harmony, the oneness, the like-mindedness of those who fellowship together for the glory of God. How beautiful it is. How life-giving it is. And then Jesus said this in John 17. This is Jesus' prayer. He was praying to the Father. And, and part of this prayer, he says this to the Father. He says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. And so Jesus is talking to the Father, and he said, hey, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to the church, I have given to your disciples, that they may be one, united, in harmony, that they may be one, Father, just as we are. So amazing to think that Jesus is praying for the unity of believers in the church, that that oneness and unity would just be like the togetherness, the unity, the oneness that the Father and the Son have. That's mind-blowing. That's what he longs for the church. And then he says in verse 23, I in them and you in me, 
that they may be perfected in, in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved them. So, so the, the end goal is not just unity, right? I mean, that's not the end goal. The end goal is so that the world may know about God and his son, Jesus Christ. That's the goal of our unity. We're together on these things because there is a greater mission. And we want to make much of God and let the world know about him. And so through our togetherness, our oneness, guess what the world is giving? getting? A picture of the love of God through Jesus Christ. That was Jesus' heart. That was his goal for his disciples, for his church. That the unity of the church would tell the message of Jesus Christ to the ends of the world that they would know and believe in Jesus as their Savior. And so our unity, our togetherness, our community, our oneness, our like-mindedness speaks a message to people that come in here on Sunday morning, that, that people we encounter during the week. It speaks something to the world. Even our singing together tells the world something that comes in through these doors that, hey, listen, this church is together about magnifying God, about letting the cross be the most important thing and magnifying Jesus. I mean, there's, there's something happening. It's telling the world of the greatness of our God and the greatness of Jesus Christ who died for us. And so our unity in Jesus' view has a great goal, has a great purpose. And so amazing to think that the same unity that the Father and the Son has is what he's going after for his church and wants us to have. Amazing. And so I want you to look at what Paul says, because the Apostle Paul knew this well. He longed for it, for the churches he planted, for the churches he started, and especially for Corinth. Um, Corinth... Um, their church, I mean, as we read this, this letter, it was messy. It was messy. And, and, so, and sometimes church is messy. Why? Because we are messy people with messy lives. And then you bring that all together, and then what do you have? You have more messy people, right? I mean, that's just reality. And so that's what you have here in, in Corinth. And, and so listen to what Paul's heart, his desire was for them, just as it was Jesus' desire for us. And so let's begin in the text this morning. Look at verse 10. He says, Now I exhort you, or I appeal to you, brethren, so the believers in the church in Corinth, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you would be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And so the word exhort here has the flavor of, of one coming alongside someone, putting their arm around you and carefully and lovingly begging them to do something different, to make a change. And so that's what Paul's doing here in this letter. He's encouraging them to, to make this change. And so Paul makes this appeal to the church by coming in the highest level of authority. As he says, I, I come to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is, as I come to you and write this, Jesus, it's as though Jesus is speaking, right? He's sharing literally the word of God. This is the inspired word of God. And so he's sharing that back to the church. You know what's amazing in these first 10 verses here? You know what Paul does 10 times in these 
first 10 verses, he mentions the name of Jesus Christ 10 times. <laughs> That's significant because what Paul is saying here is, hey, guys, listen, this is about Jesus, not about you and not about him. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So he emphasizes that by using the name of Jesus Christ 10 times in the beginning of this letter, in these first 10 verses. And he tells them that, that Jesus, with this point, that he has preeminence, that he's above all things. And what Paul is about to say is literally coming from Christ. And so what is he saying? That first of all, that they would agree, okay? That they would agree, that they would literally speak the same things. And we'll talk about what that is in just a bit. That they would have no divisions, that they would be literally made complete, that they would be united, that uh, literally it's the term mending nets. So when you think about mending a net together, that we would be mended together. Uh, and that's what Paul has in mind, that we would have the same mind, the same judgment on based about what we need to do, uh, our purpose, our, our mission as a church. And so Paul is exhorting them to that. And so in just a bit, we're going to look at what that unity looks like, what Paul was going after. But Paul's main point here is, is he wants a common declaration of allegiance to Christ, that the church would have this common allegiance. And so we'll look in just a few minutes what that, that looks like. But before we get to that, I, I want us to see the disunity, right, the divisions. What were the divisions? Well, why were there divisions? Look at, look at verse 11. Um, this is the nature of the disunity we find here in, in verse 11, and specifically in the church at Corinth. He says, I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Paul gets word about these divisions. There's two letters that get sent to him from this church that we know about. This is the first one. And they share about these divisions, the trouble in the church through this letter. And so the word for divisions here um, in verse 10 has the feeling of, of ripping or tearing something apart. It's painful. It's destructive to the fellowship and to the mission of the church. And, and some writers and some historians believe that um, what was going on in Corinth was there, there was this teaching or this believing of um, a, a sort of prosperity gospel. And so what happens a lot of times when, when you have bad theology, it produces bad behavior. And so many believe that it was this kind of this triumph, um, I can't even say that word this morning, triumphalism um, kind of thinking. It was the idea that a, a, a type of Christianity that included no persecution, no suffering, and no human limitations. And so it, it, it would equate things that, that something's wrong with your life if you've got problems. Prosperity gospel. Right? Believe this and you can be prosperous. And so many believe that there was a bad theology being preached because in Corinth, and especially in the church, there were some rich people. We're going to see that come to the surface in just a little bit on how they, their community went and how they lacked care for one another, especially for those that, that, that had less financial. And so there, some believe there was a prosperity gospel that was being preached and proclaimed. Prosperity gospel is no gospel whatsoever. It, it is a lie from Satan himself. 
There's no place in the word of God whatsoever. And so many believe that was the type of theology being spewed out by some in the church at Corinth. And so what was this unity uh, or this disunity? What was it? What, how was it being portrayed? What did it look like? Look at verse 12. He says, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. And so the quarrels between the body were present because what was happening was there developed this this party spirit. Uh, These different groups of the church were uh, appreciating their favorite leaders or their favorite teachers in a very unhealthy manner over other teachers and other leaders. They were underappreciating the other leaders in an unhealthy manner. And so what you had, the root of all this disunity was pride. They liked one person's style or uh, style of teaching and, and the wisdom that, that he threw out over the other. And so you had this dissension. And it was because of pride. It was because of self-exaltation. Say they boasted about their leader or their teacher's wisdom to really boast about themselves. And so it became a popularity contest as, as some were grouping themselves up with Paul. Now, here's the deal. These people that they were grouping themselves with, their teaching, <laughs> these leaders weren't necessarily promoting this at all. They weren't for that. But that's how these guys were grouping themselves. So when you think about those who would say, I'm of Paul, why, why would they maybe say that? Well, Paul started the church. Paul founded the church. He was the church planner. I'll never forget when I, when I started at the Ridge back um, at the beginning of 2005. I'll never forget. Um, there was this lady who had been part of the church for a long time. And she looked at me one day. I was, I was sitting at the office, and she looked at me one day, and she goes, I just got to let you know this, she said. Uh, the, the former pastor, she said, she said, he will always be my pastor, and you will not. And I thought, uh, okay, all right, well. In my mind, I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll still love you anyway, all right? <laughs> but but we, we, do, we keep our, our favorites, right? And we, we hold on to things. Sometimes we do that, and, and, and we maybe underappreciate a leader or a teacher, or, or we get to a point where we overappreciate, and we get, we get locked on to maybe different groups or different styles or different things, and it becomes very much unhealthy, and for some, it was because Paul founded the church, so they grouped themselves with him. For some, it was Apollos. Apollos was a, was a gifted apologist. He was a gifted orator uh, in the church of Corinth, and he did not promote or want this, right? Uh, some would group themselves with Cephas, who is, who is Peter. Cephas means rock. And so the thing is, is Peter, from our accounts, probably never even visited Corinth, Right? But they were grouping themselves with Peter because he was the leading apostle to the Jews. So understandably, they would want to be grouped with the cool guy for the Jews, right? Awesome dude. Yeah. And so they would be in these groups. And then the last one's a little confusing because Paul says, and those who say, I am of Christ. And you would think, well, that's the group you want to be in, which that seems all good. But this group wasn't. This group wasn't. 
they boasted about their allegiance to Christ alone in a way that held themselves as the most spiritual. There was the spiritual elitism. You know, they, maybe they had more Bible verses memorized, right, than, than the next person. They just held this spiritual elitism and their, of being above others. And in a sense, this would cut off Christ to the others. And so they all had these groupings, and pride and egos fueled these groupings and actions, and it was hurting the church. It was hurting the church. We've seen this throughout history. Some things with Calvinism, Arminianism, and things like that, and people grouping themselves in different groups. Well, oh, you believe that about end times. You're you're pre-trib, you're post-trib, you're amillennial, and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and so we, we'll group, and we'll, we, have, we, we can be prideful about those things at times. I mean, I've heard things like in, in circles when we talk about theology and stuff, people say, well, you're in the MacArthur camp, or you're in the Piper camp, or you're in this camp, and you're in that. And it's like, what? We're in camps? What in the world? And, and people will do that. And some of you guys are like, I don't even know what that stuff is. And you know what? Good. Good. But you see it on the, today, even on Facebook, with some of the leaders recently denouncing their faith and different things that people are spewing out and things like that. And you just see pride and ego sometimes, right? And, and some of it is truth that needs to be shared. I'm, I'm definitely with, but sometimes you see it playing out in the social media and it's groupings. It is. And that's what was present here. Paul says this, and, I, and this, is, this is significant. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It'll be up on the screen if you want to turn over a couple pages. It's in verse 21 through 23, but listen to what Paul says. Paul says, Then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, Paul says, whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas or the world uh, is that right? Yeah, the world or life or death or things present or things to come. Listen to what he says here. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. What is he saying here? Here's, here's the first point of this disunity is this. The world belongs to the Christian in the sense that we will inherit it one day. We'll reign over it with Christ one day. That's our view. When Christ returns and he sets up new heavens and new earth and his kingdom will reign forever, we will reign with him forever. We believe that. So here's what Paul is saying. Why boast about this one little piece of turf with this protective boasting when as children of God, you have everything? Why, why do you just group with this one little thing out of pride and boast about this? And so don't group yourself in these little groups and be pride and ego-driven and boast about, well, these certain things like these guys did. It caused division. It caused disunity. And then look at the next thing. In verse 13, it says, has Christ been divided? That's interesting. Paul was crucified for you, was he, Paul says. So what is Paul saying here? First thing he's saying is, is Christ is one. Christ is not divided. And so what Paul is saying here, he wants them to really think, is Christ divided? He wants them to think about what this disunity is doing 
And he says here, the church is the body of Christ. We read that for, throughout 1 Corinthians 12. And, and when it is not in unity, it is as though Christ is being divided. Now, where do we, where do we get that kind of idea? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, many members, but we're one, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Why is the church called the body of Christ? Because what it says here, we're many members but part of one body. We are the body of Christ here on earth. And so when there's disunity, what Paul is saying, hey, does that mean Christ is divided? It shouldn't be. Christ is one. We shouldn't be divided. And so that was the disunity. And so instead of being one, it was as though Christ was Divided, that's what Paul is saying. But look at the second question he says. Paul was crucified for you, was he? Of course not. <laughs> no. But the question is interesting. You see, the church in forming these parties or these groups together based on these leaders that they would group themselves up with, they were elevating leaders above Jesus himself. And so Paul deals with those grouping themselves with saying, was Paul crucified? Was he? No, he wasn't. Paul is say, saying no. And, and I love what Paul does here. He, he uses himself. You know, he didn't come and say, hey, was Apollos crucified? He didn't do that, okay? But he was talking about himself. No, what Paul is saying here is, I'm a sinner. <laughs> I'm in need of a Savior. And yet, many of you, Paul is saying, is elevating me over Jesus. I didn't get crucified. But instead, I needed Jesus to be crucified for me. And so what basically Paul is saying with this questioning in verse 13 is, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. So here Paul emphasizes with this line of questioning the cross of Jesus. And he is the one, Jesus is, who is preeminent and has died for sinners. And so that's why Paul says in chapter 1, verse 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord not in some leader you're grouped with, but boast in the Lord. That's where our boasting lies. Because guess what? Leaders are nothing. Paul says, I, I'm nothing. I needed Jesus to die for me. I'm nothing. Then look at verse 13. He continues at the end of that. He says, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, we hear some of these questions, and we're like, Paul, what in the world are you trying to get at? And then he says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus, Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other, right? Is, is, has Paul just hit... Uh, 40 and forgotten, right? No, right? No. Here's what Paul is saying. He asked, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He says, no, they were not, um, when Paul would baptize someone in the water, they were not to identify publicly with the leader who was baptizing them. That's silly, is what Paul is saying. No, one who's baptized in immersion in the water after they're saved, they're being baptized in the name of the Lord, was Paul's point. But yet, 
you're grouping yourself in these groups. Romans 6, verse 3 says, Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus who have been baptized into his death? In in baptism, what are you doing? You're publicly declaring your faith in Jesus, that he is Lord of your life. So you are baptized into the name of Jesus. So Paul is saying here, hey, listen, I'm not counting who I baptize. I'm not keeping score. I'm not making it about a show. In fact, He did not baptize many who he led to the Lord under his ministry. So there were no questions whose disciples they were, but they were disciples of Jesus. And this is one way Paul would keep Jesus at the center of his ministry and the churches he planted. And then look at verse 17. He says here, it's about the message. It's not about eloquence. It's not about how good the speaker is. It's it's, it's not... Uh, you know, uh, um, how eloquent, if, if he can say all the words right, right? Um, but look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. So here's what Paul does. He elevated baptism to its rightful position. But baptize, uh, being baptized does not save you. But if you are saved, Christ commands us, Matthew 28, to be baptized after we believe. So we're to then obey. But Paul did not elevate the baptizing of others above the preaching of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, about his death, about his resurrection. So Paul emphasizes here in verse 17 the message of the cross of Jesus Christ over eloquence of speech. You see, why Paul does this is because many in Corinth, many Greeks, would be impressed by fine words, by great wisdom, by great knowledge that that the speakers were declaring about their style of of teaching. Um, And so it became more about style and an oppressive speech over the message. So it kind of looks like this. We roll out here on Sunday, it's like, man, that preacher really was eloquent this morning. I loved how he shared, you know. And, and it's okay to talk about the message. It's okay to share about what you learn. It's okay. But when it becomes more about how he, that person delivered their style or about their eloquence or about, and, and, and less about the gospel, because the goal of preaching is to point us to Jesus, to point us to Christ, not to just simply get puffed up and, and gain more knowledge. The goal of my preaching, the goal of Paul's preaching, who all pastors and preachers should model themselves after, and obviously Jesus as well, but, but Paul, his goal in preaching was that people's intellect, <laughs> that what, it, we weren't tar- we're not targeting your intellect this morning. We've got enough, enough facts. We got, we got enough knowledge. But, but here's what the gospel targets, okay? It, it, it targets us in a way where it, it helps us recognize our sin, that we are sinners, and that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And that without Jesus We can't do life on our own. We've, we fall short. 
The goal of our teaching is that you come in here every morning and you, and you realize your greater need each week for Jesus to walk with you, to be your Savior this week, to, to be everything in your life this week. The goal is not to puff up our intellect. The goal is not to puff up our knowledge, but to recognize our need for a Savior, our need for Jesus, his cross, his forgiveness that he made possible by dying on the cross for us. And so that's why Paul emphasized the message of the cross. It wasn't about eloquence. But yet the people in Corinth made it about that. And so that was the nature of the disunity. I want you to go back up to verse 10 before we close, but I want you to listen to this. Paul did expect some disunity, though, in the church because some professing Christians are not genuine, not real. And so listen to how Paul addressed this. and the nature of the unity, there, there was disunity as well. And so listen, 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen 18 through 19, it says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And listen to what Paul says, In part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. So here's the deal. Unity can never become the absolute measurement for how we should relate to professing Christians. The truth must be the gospel. That's the measurement. That's the measurement. So what Paul is saying here, it's about the truth of the gospel. I mean, some, some churches can, to, can agree on a lot of things, but it may not be about the right thing. It may not be about the gospel, about the truth that they're living for. So the measurement of our unity is this, truth. The measurement of our fellowship and our community is based on truth of the gospel. And so what does this look like, Okay. What's the nature of this unity? I'm going to go back up to verse 10. I want you to see this. First of all, unity of mind and purpose, okay? Unity of mind and purpose. And, and, and so what does that mean? That we would have this like-mindedness, that we would have unity based on our purpose. It's really those two things. And so what's this unity of mind? We must have unity around our essential beliefs about God. We must be unified about our knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who He is, and what he has done for us about salvation, uh, that it is Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, and by no other means, not by works, by anything good that we can do, because we are sinners that need a Savior. And so we, we are, have a unity of mind, a like-mindedness around the central beliefs, the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. We have a unity of purpose. We must be unified around the purpose of of God, that he longs for us to be disciples, to make disciples for the glory of God. And it always must be, just as Paul says in verse 17, about the proclamation of the message of Jesus Christ. That is what we are to be about. And that's the goal of our unity, that the world may know, that the world may know about Jesus. The unity of our mind, the unity of purpose. And listen to how Paul put this together in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what he so longs for his church. 
So we're centered. We have this unity around our essential beliefs. But not only that, we have a unity of concern and care. And that's crucial. That's crucial. 1 Corinthians 12, 24 through 25, as, as Paul is talking about the church, their oneness, even though there are many members that they're one, listen to what he says. He says, God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacks, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Do you hear that? It's not just unity of mind. It's not just um, unity around the essential beliefs, that's crucial. You have to have that. You must have that. But it's also unity around concern and care for one another. And I just want to share this with you. Some of you guys are like freaking out. He's got his phone out. Is he checking text? Um, but I want to share this with you. I, I got this from Debbie Bird this week. And as I was thinking about this point, I thought, oh, my goodness, what a, what a great model of this. Um, Jenna, who was 15 um, and lost her life on, on Monday, but is now with Jesus. As Paul would say, it's so much better to be with Jesus. <laughs> so much better. Um, but... Debbie received this text, or the family received this text, and she shared it with us, and she said, I wanted to share this below. She said that this person who's writing says, I have been trying to get Morgan, this girl at their church, more involved in the student ministry over the last two years. She hardly comes to Bible study. She hardly comes on Sunday or youth on Wednesday. I've invited her multiple times to even sing with our youth worship group because she has a lovely voice but I've had no success in getting her to come. She was at the prayer time last night on Monday night for Jenna Bird and spoke how much Jenna meant to her as a friend. She sent me this following text last night. A reminder to us that we never truly know the amount of influence we may have on those around us. And listen to what the text said from this student. She said, Hi, Mr. Barecki. This is Morgan. Sorry to text you this late, but I was just reflecting on the impact Jenna made in my life. And there's one thing she taught me. It's that being close to God is the most important thing there is. I'll be at youth tomorrow. And if you need me, I'd love to sing in the praise room. Jenna showed care and concern. Another story came in. This one, <laughs> that one's cool. But listen to this. And so students hear this this morning. Your impact for Jesus does not have to wait to college, to after college, or in your mind to when you become grown up and have a parent, or, or are a parent. <laughs> I'm a parent. I'm not really that grown up. But um, don't think in that mind. Don't think of, well, that's for later. I can do those things later. I can be that later. I mean, we've all been there and had those thoughts. But you are the church if you know Jesus Christ, you're just as much part of the church as the, the 50s and 60s guys in here. I mean, the 40s and 30s too. I mean, you are just as much as part of the church. And so your impact of, of love and concern, the stuff that we're talking about this morning, is, is for all ages. And so look at the, listen to this other story. I, I love this one. 
you see, the birds used to live, Amanda and Philip used to live on the coast. And so they've recently just moved. I mean, they've only been kind of in the Midland area, Greenwood area for, what, three months, I think, or so. And listen to this. A church they were at in the coast, uh, Rockport area, somewhere over there. Thank you. <laughs> Straight from the mouth of the family, Port Lavaca. Thank you, buddy. Um, they have a new pastor recently. And so here's the text. Our new pastor's son, Mason, went to church camp. He got a note from Jenna saying that she knew what it was like to be the new kid. She told him how much she loved our church family and hoped he found family there like she did. She told him, welcome to the coast. And so Mason, that Monday night at their prayer gathering there at their church, shared what that meant to him. A teenager <laughs> sending a note to a kid, pastor's kid, who's new to the church and just saying, hey, listen, welcome the church. I know it's hard being a new kid. Wow. Amazing. And, and, and we all are called, no matter of our age, to have the, that type of concern and care for each other. That type of love. Philippians 2.2, Paul says this, make my joy complete. And so as Paul would write to these churches, he'd say, listen, make me happy. <laughs> make me joyful by being of the same mind, church, by maintaining the same love and concern, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul would, would I mean, that's what made him so joyful when he would hear about those things. When he would hear of how they're loving and caring for each other and holding on to the message of the cross. Oh, it, it'd get him jazzed. And that's what we're to be about as a church. Unity of mind, of purpose, unity of concern and love and care for one another. And so as we close, we are all responsible, each one of us, for unity within the church. We're all responsible. We must eliminate any pride from our hearts. One of the things that I love, this morning was, was just a cool picture, and, and I love our elders, and I love the leadership, the staff of this church, because it, to every person, I can only say, honestly say it's never about them. It's never about us. It's never about me. If you, I don't know if you've ever recognized this here. We, we, we long to, and, and, and continue to be in this shared leadership. We, we are a team of elders of six. There's two of us uh, on staff. There's, there's four volunteers. And, and during the summer, some of them teach and preach. Uh, today, what was so cool is, is I did the, the student meeting uh, in here, but Jerry Webb went and preached this message at 9 a.m. at the, the volunteers because, hey, we, you know what? That's, we, we, we roll together. It is not about personalities. It's not just about one person, one pastor, one leader. We are together on this, and we want that to be how the church rolls because we're all servants. We're all called to be ministers of the gospel. And so we so long to model that for you in how we lead and that there would be no pride, 
no pride, no egos in this. And so that's the third point, is we must die to self for the sake of unity. Paul did that. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, Paul said. But I live for Christ, for the one who loved me and gave his life for me. I live as though Christ is living through me every day. That's how unity is kept. Sheep also don't argue amongst themselves if they're following the shepherd, right? So we must keep following the shepherd. And lastly, it's always about Jesus, about the proclamation of the cross of Christ for the glory of God. It must always be about that, always. Let's pray.